Last time we talked about Daniel 4.14, the cutting down of the tree and trimming off, and the tree was a dominion, and stripping off its leaves and scattering its fruit. And so it says in Daniel 4.14, let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but let the stump and its roots be bound with iron and bronze and remain in, in the ground in the grass of the field. And so what I didn't, what I wanted to mention last time, and I didn't because we just didn't have enough time, but the iron and bronze, remember we had mentioned it, you notice it wasn't gold or silver, and we talked about bronze being brass, whatever, but the real key here is if you map it into the Nebuchadnezzar statue, it, it really maps into uh, Babylon being the head of gold, and then Medo-Persia being silver, which we're getting to that cusp now between Babylon and Medo-Persia, so we're working toward that. And then the Greek, the Grecian Empire was brass, which Hellenized the world. And then finally, the big boy was iron, which is the Roman Empire. And then iron and clay is the res, resurrected Roman Empire when that comes. But So right now, what it's saying is, is that there's a relationship between this stump and its roots that is related to, these, to, to uh, the Medo-Persia and Greece and Roman Empire. So we're going we're gonna to actually examine that because obviously I... I made the study a long time ago, but when I was studying and I was reading about how all of this went together, it really goes into, again, Daniel being the map of the Gentile world powers throughout history from Babylon forward to the end and Israel's place in it. It maps how they relate to each other in what we'll say is the religious sense, because this is what's the real key is, is their gods versus this God and prophecies in Israel and all that stuff and, and all of this plays together. So the iron and bronze really refer to the Roman and Greek empire, but we're going to see how in this dream it means something. It's really a matter of, of worship. And the Babylonian mystery religion, you know, because we've discussed this many times, started with Nimrod and the Tower of Babel, and we know what that's all about, and his wife Semiramis and Tammuz. And that really forms the basis of everything that we have in this world today. It's the root of it all. And so it naturally mutates as it moves into other cultures and religions and so forth, as it still competes for the truth of God's word. And so that's what we're going to kind of see here. So you know that Semiramis and Tammuz became the basis for the mother and son the, uh, the religion, but also the mother as a god or a goddess like Mary's worshipped as a redemptrix and she's god basically for the Catholic religion. And that stems from Semiramis and Tammuz. So when, it, when we move into the Roman and the Greek empires, the mother and son religion mutates. Now again, this is before Catholicism and all that stuff, right? So, but it mutates. And you know, they had a lot of gods in those days in both the Grecian and the Roman empires. And so for the Romans and the Greeks, it mutated from Semiramis and Tammuz to Aphrodite and Adonis. And those were the mapped gods that they worshipped, going back to still worshipping Semiramis and Tammuz. And of course, Nimrod by extension. Um, and then Diana of the Ephesians, which we know the scripture in the New Testament talks a lot about that. And how she's the goddess of fertility. And by the way, it, it maps through all of these, especially now more than ever. And you see through history, as we move toward where we are now, the goddess, the feminine, is really the more important god than the masculine. That's how Satan is twisting things. We see like the Statue of Liberty is female, and we know that it's based on Columbia, it's based on Diana, it's based on all of these things, but it's the sacred feminine. And that's why we worship in this country, as far as our government goes, with the Roman-style Senate we have and all these things, you have the District of Columbia, and on the top of the Capitol Dome is Columbia. And she's got a shield and a sword. The shield says U.S. And right in front of it, 
Just like at St. Peter's Basilica, you have an obelisk, which is Osiris's male member, which impregnates Isis, and then she has a pregnant belly, which is going to give birth to the Antichrist, their true God. And that's why there's a dome on the Capitol, and there's also a dome on St. Peter's Basilica in front of an obelisk. It's a copy. Matter of fact, our forefathers in this country were originally going to name Washington, D.C. Rome. They were going to do that because it is a copy of that moving forward. This is how deep this stuff goes, and, and that's why it's related that way in Scripture. How it really moves forward here is that the idea here is that Rome and Greece took on some religious aspects of the Babylonian and the Persians, but they went a little bit of a different way. Now, we, again, the Babylonians is the mother and son cult, and the, the Persians became Zoroastrian. I might have mentioned that before, but I want to read some things about it because it's better to understand how it maps in to the Babylonian system. So I want to read some things about it, but how it relates. It all goes back to the mother and son cult versus, and of course, that Tammuz was killed and then resurrected, just like the real Jesus, you see how all this is moving toward the Antichrist, right? Which people are groomed for this. So they had the same type of ideas, we're going to see that in a second, but they worshipped the mother and son cult and other gods of the Babylonian. That's why the statue is all tied together, because the things fell from the head of gold to the silver to the brass, and a lot of that means the statue's connected, just like, if you want to think of it, Christ being the head of the church. So this could be the head of the global system, which started actually from before this in Nimrod. And, and of course, we don't see anything about Egypt, which was before when Joseph in Egypt and all that stuff. Daniel really starts at the most impactful iteration of the Babylonian system, well, the mother and son cult. The Nimrod religion, the Babylonian system, Bissary Babylon really started here in the gold. And that's why this is keyed from this point forward, because it's really talking about the end times and how all of this is going to affect the end times until we go into the millennium, which you know is the main prophecies of Daniel. So that's why it starts at the head of gold. Kind of interesting that way. They worshipped in type of the certain things. So I want to read you something, which I alluded to here. It's a long document. I'm not going to read the whole document. I'm going to read excerpts from it because I found it interesting when I was doing the original thing. The religion of ancient Persia. Now remember, we're at the cusp here in the book of Daniel. We're moving toward Nebuchadnezzar going crazy, and he comes back out of it. And there's some more things we have to see about that in a second. And then we move forward about 24 years it's compacted in Daniel, and then Belshazzar is in there, and that is technically the end of the Babylonian Empire, and then we go into the Medo-Persian. So we're right at this cusp. The religion of the Babylonians at that time and ancient Persia, which is Zoroastrian, had a lot of things in common, and that fell through into the Grecian Empire and the Roman Empire, and that's why the Catholic Church is so tightly tied to Rome, because it's all related back through that stack, through the statue up to Nimrod. And that's really what it is. So this is interesting. I'll read it to you. This is about religion in ancient Persia. It says here, and I got this from a site called Historel, the history of religion. As Persia had been conquered by the Aryan tribes, we would not be surprised to find that the same pantheon of gods from the Vedic period in India, this is now obviously stuff you have to see about history, but it's showing you how pervasive this is. There was this influence from the pantheon of gods that they had in India back before that time, now, these were both beneficent and frightening at the same time. And you know that these gods, the Roman gods, the Greek gods, and all these other gods, they're all capricious. Some of them are good some of the time. Some of them are good until they get angry or get annoyed at you. So you keep on sacrificing. We keep on trying to treat them. And that's these gods that they still that they serve. 
So they move forward, and this really doesn't change because the gods they're really serving are the fallen angels and the demons, which really are like that. They're really controlling everything, and they mutate into different gods throughout. Their religion was very close to nature, and their worship was often done outside on a top of a mountain. And you also know that they used to worship in groves and the high places, exactly. Led by the Magi, which you know the story of the Magi, right? The Magi were the key Zoroastrians. They were also the kingmakers too, but that, I digress. That's, that's, a, that's for later. But they were led by the Magi who guarded the secret five. Five of what? It really doesn't say. The secret five of something. But you see how this occultism, everything's occluded, and this is the same thing. They're guarding the something, the secret five here. It says here, this place called Mount Elberg, and I don't know where that is, was believed to be the holy mountain with cosmic significance. Just like Mount Hermon is technically a portal. And if you look at the Book of Enoch, and see, people can believe it or not, it doesn't really matter. We know that there was a point of entry for the angels that consorted with women, and it was Mount Hermon. And Jesus was right there too when he said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Just think about the importance of this fact, this reality. So it was cosmic significance as it was from there that souls ascended to the sky in their religion. Sort of when you die, you go that way. There also was one, f uh, there was, listen to this, there also one found the donkey with nine mouths and six eyes along with ten fish who guarded the tree Gekorina. Now that's crazy, but think of it. It's, it's like uh, the angels, the, the cherubim that guard the, that's right. the tree. That's right. And donkey, which had nine mouths, and if you look at the parallel in scripture, there was Balaam's donkey who also spoke. So you see how this is an amalgam of the truth and all of these lies? Twisting. Twisting, right. It's like every culture in the world has a story of a, a worldwide catastrophe, such as a flood, that changed the, the course of the earth in one time many, 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 many years ago. And there's so many things. It's like this is not just made-up stories. These are based on the things that are true, and they mutate over time. And, of course, as you said, the angels also are, are concocting this and giving it a life of its own throughout all of these eons, right? Anyway, so I, I'm guessing that they guarded the tree Gokarina, which is probably something like the tree of life. You know, the cherubim guarding the way back into the Garden of Eden. It's the same concept here. Listen to this. The juice from its fruit gave the elixir of immortality, which was coveted by an evil lizard. That's funny. But think of the... It is funny, but think of this. The evil lizard, reptilian evil lizard Satan and he's looking to be alive and gather heaven forever just like that dragon with chasing the ball that he once lost and he wants to get back isn't that interesting the greatest Persian god of antiquity was Ahura Mazda Ahura Mazda like the car Mazda there's this constellation called Mazda but I'm going to tell you who Mazda is so when you're driving a Mazda you're being pretty holy like I have a Mazda Miata so Ahura Mazda was holy to who no, well, yeah, well, not, that's right. But Ahura Mazda, get this, is the god of light and wisdom. Now, what does Satan want to be and is going to come as and purports himself to be? So their main god, Ahura Mazda, was the god of light and wisdom. And Zarathustra abbreviated his name to, it's like you're going to abbreviate it, make it simple, but it's not simple, it's O-H-R-M-A-Z-D. So Ahura Mazda was abbreviated to Ormazda. 
without the A at the end. I don't know how you pronounce it, but that's what it's spelled. Now listen to this. In the beginning, in the beginning, this is there in the beginning, their Genesis. The god Zervan Akarana, which means infinite time. So the god named infinite time bemoaned the fact that he had no son. What does God the Father have? A single begotten son. He didn't bemoan the fact, but you see that there's a God who's going to be the father of a son. Doesn't all this sound like really familiar based on truth? Isn't this amazing? So, so he's, uh, he had no son. So he offered a sacrifice to the creator with a capital C. So this was a God. He wasn't the creator, but he offered a sacrifice to the big creator who gave him twins. The first was Ahura Mazda, which is what we talked about, the god of light, who became the god of truth and light and wisdom. The second was named Araman. Now, here's, listen to this, which can be translated as destructive thought. So he has twins, and they're divergent, black and white, as above, so below, opposites, just like all of these other... It's amazing. They always have this yin and yang thing going on. Just like Abel and Cain, one was good and the other were evil. And the two brothers, the twins, represented the good and bad tendencies in humanity in their religion. But we also see that in the truth in Cain and Abel. See all these relationships? It is amazing to me. So that's it. So I'm going to go a little further down here. Now their cosmology, how things began, who created what. The first man and his name, now this is how it's spelt. I don't know if this is a transliteration, but it's almost like Walmart, but it says Geomart. <laughs> that's what it says. Yeah, I don't know if you're going to name somebody that's like naming a boy named Sue, like he's going to be laughed at, so he's probably not going to be very happy. But he's the first man, so nobody, there's nobody else there to laugh at him. Was born out of the sweat of Mazda, Ahura Mazda. So he sweated and he was born out of that. It's an immaculate, not an immaculate, but I mean it's a creation event of the first man. Like God breathes the, the breath of life into Adam. Well, this guy sweated the breath, sweated life into this, this guy, the first man. But he died 30 days later. From his immortal remains, a human couple re- emerged. Isn't that amazing? And the name of these couple was Masha and Mashoi. I guess one means man and woman, but that's, the names are very close. Like Adam and man and woman. You see, it sounds something like that. They had seven pairs of children who in turn gave birth to 15 tribes who, according to ancient Persian lore, peopled the earth. Just like Adam and Eve gave birth and the tribes were supposed to people the earth. But think of it, though, the real division of peoples was from the Tower of Babel. That's where you really started having different cultures and everything because the world was of one language. So they're saying something like the history of the real world, and that's what they believe. So here's the final thing. This evolution of conscience, which could discern good and reject the influence of demons. See, now there's power in this religion. There's an evolution of conscience from the gods, just like we have a conscience. We know good from evil. Led to life lived with a pure spirit, So what they're basically saying here, they believe that when the human being knows good from evil, like what Eve did and Adam did, this is basically what they're saying here, it seems to me, that they could then, with this discernment, which was given to them by their gods, reject the influence of the demons, 
which of course it didn't work that well with Adam and Eve. They didn't reject anything, and most people do not. They don't even know that they should reject that. But it led to life lived with a pure spirit under the light of heaven. The spirit of Christ and the kind of thing. You see how all of this is tied in. Maza was the god of light, and so he gave wisdom and guides it from heaven. And then there's more to it, and it's, it's amazing. There's a great spirit, that, which is Mazda. And there's more relationships here. I don't even read anymore, because, and I'm only reading excerpts from this, but this was a great article, and I found it because it really shows the relationship of all of these amalgam of religions that are based on some modicum of truth. And I believe when you have the world's religions and the world's occult, they're actually trying to drive history to a certain point. And why they cannot predict the future like God can in prophecy, they use certain techniques to message people over the generations who adhere to their things to continue along with a plan, which is driven by Satan. So they use numerology, gematria, and they try to make things happen. Like they'll say, our founding fathers would say, when they did, that we were going to be the beginning of the new world order. This fledgling nation, and that's why it's on the back of your dollar bill. That was the intent for this nation. So how do you make it span a couple of hundred years so that they don't forget that they've got to manipulate everything to do this? Well, they use numbers, they use gematria, they use numerology, they also use a lot of other things. And of course, they're in contact with the demons and stuff who drive it all. So this is really what this is all about. Having said all of that, the Romans and the Greeks and the Babylonians and of course the Persians with, with Zoroastrianism and of course the true religion, which is the history of the Bible, the Bible's the foundation of some of these things so that the memories have long legs. They don't forget about certain things because the bedrock is things that happened in Scripture. Does that make sense? But of course, it's all falsified. So Satan doesn't create anything new, but what he does is he keeps on regurgitating what is already true, but he torques it, and he's a master strategy, but he's not an innovator, and you can see it in all these religions, and that's, that's what this is about. So keeping all of that in mind, it's important as we move forward. This is why it seems that the Persians are left out, that you notice the Persian Empire, which is silver, there's no band of silver and there's no band of gold, because really it's how the Romans and the Greek took this Zoroastrianism, the Persian, which was based on Babylonian, but they made different. Their mother and son cult became Jesus and Mary as it moved down right into the Catholic Church. So this was the preferred method to keep religion moving forward, to map more closely, to mimic God's plan. This is what it seems to be anyway. Does that make sense? Anyway, the Babylonian system, the Babylonian mystery religion is bound in iron and bronze, but not silver and certainly not gold. So let's look at the legacy of the very different Persian religion that God put to good use. What was the legacy of this whole thing? You notice that when Jesus was born, the Jews didn't recognize the sign, but the Zoroastrians did. Now, by the time Jesus was born, the world was pretty well populated. And so it wasn't just Jews. I mean, it was Jews. And of course, there was this new thing with Christianity wasn't even around it because Jesus was just being born. But you had Zoroastrian, you had the Roman Empire, the Greek already Hellenized the world. All of this stuff had already happened. All of these religions were pretty well baked and they were, they were running all fine. But why is it those Magi, the Zoroastrians were the ones who traveled two years because they recognized the sign. The Jews didn't recognize the sign that God gave them. And the other religions didn't either. No other country sent people to Israel at that time, to Bethlehem, to see the newborn king. Because Daniel, which this whole thing is based on, history holds 
Because Daniel was so tied up with the Babylonian system because he was there. And even after all of this happened, and even after Belshazzar came in and he was done, and it was the end of Medo-Persia, and the people went back with Cyrus to rebuild the city and the temple, Daniel never went back. He migrated north to near the Caspian Sea, which is on the western end of Persia, which is Babylon. And he supposedly died there, and I believe he did, but he never stopped teaching. So what he taught them replaced the Zoroastrianism with the true understanding of prophecy, which was Daniel's specialty, of when Messiah was going to be born. And they wanted to know about the king of the Jews. And they wanted to know that, and they knew that he was going to be Messiah. And that's why they traveled two years with an entourage. And they were wealthy. They were kingmakers. And they wanted to see this, this child who was going to be the king of the Jews and then the king of the world and the savior. Isn't that interesting? See how it all ties together. It all ties together. Are you familiar with the thought that, that Daniel may have given his wealth in preparation for the Christ child? I never heard of that. No, I never, I never. Because, you know, since Daniel was a eunuch, so he didn't have any children. Right. And um, I, I don't even remember where I heard it. You hmm. know, obviously it's, a, it's theoretical. There's well, it, it, it's a good point, though. But it. Think of it because he was very high up in Nebuchadnezzar's right. staff, and he had wealth because of that, and he probably took it all with him. Right. Yeah. And another, see, now that you got me thinking here, which is a dangerous thing. Another thing is, is because of that wealth and stature, he was already high up with those who were very high in the religious order in Babylon and the governmental order. So he had these connections all the way even when he moved to the Caspian Sea. That's why he knew these kingmakers and generations after them because they were all taught by Daniel, and Daniel was a high-level guy. He taught the highest of the high, and that's why that makes sense to me. I never heard of that before, but it makes sense. Oh, it's his inheritance. Yeah, basically. his inheritance. That's, that's a, I never thought about that. I don't know. Yeah, no, well, we don't know, a, it but it's a, interesting. I just heard it, and it was like, wow, that makes, that makes sense. Yeah, it actually does. It makes a lot of sense. And, and you know what? Like the history that shows that Daniel moved to the Caspian Sea, I mean, can we verify that? I, I guess you could if you look deeper into it, maybe. But it doesn't matter. The point is, is that it jives. It all jives together. So it's interesting. Yeah, interesting. Okay. I had more notes in here, but we all know not only the history of the Magi, but we also know about that symbol in the sky, which is called a star in Scripture. Whatever it was... We know that God puts stars and the courses of stars and the constellations and how they interact with each other, especially with Regulus, the star, and, and, and the planet Jupiter and, and Saturn, how they interact with each other tells a story. And we know that in Genesis it says that God created these things for signs and seasons, to mark seasons and signs and other events. And so one of them was how it was configured to point to Jesus coming, and they knew it, and that, that was the point. That's a very good point. Okay. The point is that Daniel, as told in his book, was along for the ride in the transition of the Babylonian Empire, because we're now getting toward the end of that. We're going to get back into this now. Nebuchadnezzar is going to go nuts for seven years, and then we have the scriptures go right into pretty much Belshazzar. And we know the handwriting on the wall stuff, so there's, there's no spoiler alert there, because you already know what's going to happen. But there's some interesting facts if you look at the chronology of the book of Daniel, because it's not in chronological order. Some of it is, some of it's not. So we're going to get into that and see there was a gap, the time gap, between Nebuchadnezzar's death and Belshazzar. And I'm going to read from Flavius Josephus, who documented exactly what happened. And it's good to understand the transition as we move down that statue, that dream that he had. So 
Let's go to Daniel chapter 4 and verse 15. Uh, uh, Daniel chapter 4 and verse 15. So let him be drenched. This is, of course, God talking to Nebuchadnezzar. But remember, who wrote chapter 4 in this book? Nebuchadnezzar. So he's now dictating his story. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. Now you know that seven phrase is used or that symbol is used if you want to call it. That shorthand symbol is like seven times is usually years, right? Like when Daniel says time, time and a half, at times you know it's three and a half years. So we know that this is seven years. And seven is the number of completion, so this is what God has said. It's going to decree that he be living like an animal and out of his mind for seven years. Verse 17, the decision is announced by messengers, the watchers, the holy ones, declare the verdict, so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. Now, isn't that interesting? I think there are a lot of Christians who really want to believe that, but they're not quite sure. Even this guy, God convinced him. It doesn't matter bad or good or or where it leads to in history. God puts all our leaders, wherever they are and whoever they lead, in position for such a time as that, whatever it is. So listen to this. Verse 18 of chapter 4. So this is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, So we know that he's still writing this chapter in Daniel. Now, Belshazzar... Tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me. But you can. Why? Now listen to this. Because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Now remember, it seemed like he understood that there was one God, but yet he's saying holy gods. So now I looked in the King James and it says holy gods there as well. But should it be the singular? It seems like he knows the spirit of God because he's saying the most high, there is one God, and it's the God of Daniel. Anyway, so verse 19. Then Daniel, also called Belshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. This is pretty bad when you go in front of a guy like Nebuchadnezzar and tell him, what I'm going to tell you is really your demise. (laughs) It's like, you know, that guy has a habit of killing people when he doesn't like what they have to say. But he's quoting the dream now. So in verse 20, he goes, The tree you saw, which grew large and strong with its, touch, with its top touch in the sky, visible to the whole earth, this whole dominion of Babylon, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, this head of gold, very precious, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beasts of the field, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds of the air. You, O king, are that tree. Just as you, O king, are that head of gold. It's the same thing. So he's saying what the fact is that God put him there to rule the earth. Rule the earth. By the way, isn't the Antichrist going to be the same kind of thing? He is going to build a dominion that is going to be a one world order. That is going to rule the whole earth. And he's going to be the top of that tree. At the end of the destruction where we know that Babylon, mystery Babylon gets destroyed when he is put away. The son of perdition. He says, you have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. You, O king, saw a messenger, a watcher, a cherub, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze 
in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live like the wild animals until seven times pass by. Verse 24, this is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree that the Most High has issued against my Lord the king. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge, and listen to this, until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign, not all these different gods, over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. <laughs> like, this is going to be great advice for anybody, right? Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, now see, memories like short. Memory, right? Twelve months later, after this dream, twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of, palace of Babylon, remember who did the same thing and fell into sin? David. When he should have been out in battle with his men, he was walking around his roof, looking around, saying, I am king of all I survey, and he sees Bathsheba. Well, it's the, this is the kind of idleness I am great. Now, remember, the last thing that Daniel pretty much says to him was recognize that you are only here because God put you here. You're not as great as you think you are. And so, like he is saying, I am king of all. I survey, and I built all this. Look what I have done. That's what starts trouble in the mind of man, right? He said in verse 30, Is not this great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my, oops, bad word, my mighty power, and for the glory, the glory. God is not going to share his glory with anybody. But for the glory of my majesty, I can see God. Okay, get this thing ready. In verse 31, the words were still on his lips. <laughs> God wasted no time. There's no time gap here. When a voice came from heaven, this is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority, and God is speaking as if it's already done, has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by. I wonder if he's remembering what Daniel told him about a year ago. You know, like, uh-oh. Will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Verse 33, immediately, immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hairs grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, again, see, he's still writing this. This is what's so cool. He's writing this. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity restored. But my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High, and I honored and glorified Him, not them, who lives forever. Now, what does he continue to say here? His dominion is an eternal dominion. That's true. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. That's true. Verse 35, all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He, God, does as he pleases with the powers of heaven, not they, not them, and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, 
what have you done? And we've seen that exact kind of quote in other places in Scripture. No one can say to God, what are you done? What will you do? Why have you done this? No one can say you can't, hold, you, you can't do that. And finally, in verse 36, at the same time that he's now acknowledging God, like God promised, that my sanity was restored, also, listen to this, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out. Now, these people also knew that he went crazy. Now they're seeking him out again. And I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the gods? No, he says, the king with the capital K of heaven. Why? Because everything he, singular God, he does is right. And all his, singular God, ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So, was Nebuchadnezzar destined for Abraham's bosom, do you think, after that? Do you think he made it? I really don't know. Acknowledge God at one point in his Yeah, and yeah, and he had the privilege of writing exactly this, extolling the virtues of God, just like everything else in Scripture does, in Scripture. So yeah, I don't know. My jury's out on that. What do you think? Anyway, listen to this: Psalms chapter two, verses one through four. Does Nebuchadnezzar's insanity map into the world today? You know this insanity that he went through. Listen to this. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers together against the Lord, against his anointed one, which we know is Jesus. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs, like he did when he made Nebuchadnezzar go crazy, and the Lord scoffs at them. So this is amplifying the end. The Amplified Bible puts Psalms 2-4 in this way. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord has them in derision and in supreme contempt. He, God, mocks them. The creeping insanity continues until the time of the end as the governments try to bring about a one-world tree of dominion, like I was saying, and the Antichrist becomes the final Nebuchadnezzar. And we know that it says in 2 Timothy that in the end there will be perilous times, that people will actually be insane, ragingly insane. That's what it says. The term that says perilous times is the same term that they use for the demoniac in the Garden of Gethsemane, ragingly insane. So it's this type of insanity. And you look at, look at today. Insanity doesn't necessarily mean someone clawing at you. It means that they, they don't know if they're a man or a woman anymore, um, that good is evil and evil is good. This is insanity. The way people think is insanity. It's not even it's just that's a different lifestyle. It's a different way. No, it's insanity. It really is insanity. And the worst part of insanity is people think that they're more sane than you are. That's perilous. Okay. As we move, we're closing in chapter 4. And this is interesting because this is now going to be a transition point. We're closing in chapter 4 with a major quote of the major player other than Daniel in this book, which is Nebuchadnezzar so far. I mean, he is this king of Babylon, this system at that time. And he is the, the head of gold of the entire system. And his progeny, or not progeny, his um, rulership, his, the way things were done, the religion, everything rings like a bell and, and resounds all throughout then to the end of the age, which is what Daniel talks about. Let's think about chronology here because we're going to have to understand a couple of things as we move closer to the end of chapter 4. Here's the chronology of the book of Daniel in chronological order, the chapters. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. So far, so good. But then chapter 7 and 8, and I'll prove this to you in a second. 
and then chapter five. So as we leave chapter four and move to chapter five, there's a gap of time that is chronicled somewhere else in seven and eight. But then after you get back to chapter five, then chapter six, and then chapter nine, and then 10, 11, and 12. Why it was put out of order, and when you look at the book, I don't really understand why it's not in chronological order. I don't know why it wasn't filed that way. It's not that important, but it's good to understand that. Daniel chapter 4 is a type of the insanity the world must go through, up to and including the tribulation, which is really what we're looking at in the book of Daniel. We, we see that, and that was we just proved that. Before the restoration of sanity completed in the return of Jesus Christ. What I'm saying here, roughly speaking, but it does hold water, if you look at the seven years of insanity, which was Nebuchadnezzar, the seven years of tribulation is going to be the epitome of insanity that the world has never seen until that time, headed up by the end-time Nebuchadnezzar, Antichrist, son of perdition. He's going to drive the world and operate that world in that insanity where Nebuchadnezzar could not do that, but it's the same thought. It's the ragingly insanity by the Antichrist power at the time. That's the end of chapter 4. Chapter 5 then starts moving the story toward Belshazzar and the end of the Babylonian head of gold empire. Just as you have the bell curve of the Babylonian empire, the, one of the greatest empires that ever really graced the face of this earth, it's starting to wane down very quickly. And now we're setting up for the rest of Daniel, but we're also moving down the statue to the uh, silver because the gold is now done. And remember that chapter 5 does not directly follow chapter 4. So we're going to have to see about that. But let's look at some timeline here. At this point, it is now 538 B.C. And Belshazzar, now the king of Babylon, did not directly ascend to the throne from Nebi. So that's why there's this gap. That's why 7 and 8 come first and then 5. Because it wasn't like as soon as Nebuchadnezzar's done, Belshazzar's up there and he's the head of the Babylonian Empire at that time. That's not what happened. So let's see what happened real quick. Between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, there were these kings. And here's their names. And I love this first name. This is like... You have a child and you name him Evil Merodach. <laughs> it sounds like a Batman character. Yeah. Evil Merodach. That was Nebuchadnezzar's son, so he named him Evil. It's like, maybe you were still insane when you had this kid? Evil Merodach. And then there was Neraglisoros. And then there was the son of this Neraglisoros, the Borosorcidus. He was even more wicked than this Neraglisoros thing guy. And then in 555 B.C., this Nabonidus became king, and then Belshazzar was co-regent. So this is how Belshazzar comes into the scene. Until he takes the throne in 538. So 555, you have this Nabonidus. And that's why they believe that Belshazzar was Nebuchadnezzar's great-grandson. There's, there's the family lineage in there, but because of his son and the other son and the other son who keeps the line. But the Bible doesn't talk about all of that, and that's the point. It does mention it in 7 and 8, but not really a lot, and that's why Cadence is good. Many historians think of Belshazzar as actually the son of this evil Merodach, who was Nebuchadnezzar's son. That's why it's the great-grandfather kind of thing. Based on Daniel 5.7, I'll just read 5.7. The king called out for the chanters, the astrologers, and the diviners to be brought and said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing, this is the handwriting on the wall, this is chapter 5, but listen to this. Whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. So he's kind of doing what Nebuchadnezzar kind of did, but in a different way. It says in history that he had so many names, no one's really sure about it. Anyway, so let's go back. So here's the timeline. 
Nebuchadnezzar dies in 562 BC. Now remember, there's a 70-year captivity, and we're moving toward the end of the captivity, because right after Belshazzar comes the Medo-Persian, which is Cyrus, and that's the end, and then we know that we move them back to Israel, they rebuild the city in Jerusalem, and then the new temple, and then the rest, as they say, is moving forward. So we, this is where we are on the timeline. That leaves a gap of 24 years, 24 years, two decades and a half between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. So there's a lot of time between Nebuchadnezzar recovering from his insanity, taking over his kingdom again, being the top dog again. The Bible doesn't say anything about that rest of his, of his tenure as king of Babylon then. And then he dies, and there's 24 years. So what happened in that interim? Chapter 7 begins with, Daniel chapter 7, in the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, which is 555 BC. Chapter 8 begins in the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, which is 553 BC. So that's why you have to look at those first. Chapter 5 begins only with King Belshazzar gave a banquet. So he was king for a while. There was all of this intrigue, which is not really documented that well. So there was a span of time. Meanwhile, 24 years, plus maybe a little bit more, goes by and God is still in the background getting Israel ready, getting everything ready for the arrival of Cyrus and the promise of seventy years. And that's why Jeremiah starts asking the question. And then Daniel, further down the line, asks the question, reading Jeremiah and prays, and then he gets the prophecies. And that's how that all builds up. Knowing that chapter 5 that we're going into is not chronologically the next, but it's the next important, most important feature of what happens. So we can leave the evil Morodek and all those others behind. We don't really care about those in the timeline of the prophecy, the book of Daniel. Now, Daniel chapter 5, verses 1 through 31. So we're going to say here, it's getting close now, really close at this point, because it's 68 years since the beginning of the captivity. They only got two more years left. That's why Daniel's starting to really look hard into this because he knows. And Jeremiah, who was his contemporary, as we know, was writing about this too. Babylon will be overthrown very soon. And Darius the Mede comes to power. And then through Cyrus, he sets the Jews free. Nabonidus, the primary king, remember Belshazzar was co-regent at this time, was out on a military conquest as Belshazzar was now to sort of be like the teenager left at home, like mommy's, daddy's going to leave. No parties. Yes, I promise you, no parties. Meanwhile, he's on the cell phone calling his friends. That's what happened. Belshazzar was just a fool. Daniel chapter 5 and verse 1. So the real king, after Nebuchadnezzar, it's now his son, 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 Nebonidus, is the primary king. He goes off, so Belshazzar is now in charge. The teenager in charge of the house. King Belshazzar, what does he do? Call his friends, have a great party gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles. He had, he caught the whole high school coming over. They brought their pot, their booze, everything. Mommy and daddy are away. And drank wine with them. Now here's, you know the rest of the story. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple. This is another thing where God's going to intervene like real quick here. So that the king and his nobles his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So he's showing off the goods, showing how great his father was and how great their kingdom is that they were actually able to take this God's stuff and bring it in and, and use it and, and abuse it. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem and the king and the nobles and his wives and concubines drank from them. And as they were drinking the wine, they praised the gods of gold. Listen to this of gold, silver, and bronze. What's the statue made out of? 
All of these gods, this pantheon of gods, I told you, it's all related, right? They praise them all. They don't even care at this point. They praised all the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, and then also of their own making, it seems to me, of iron, and then wood and stone. And remember, the Bible delineates those type of idols a lot of times to those that we make with our own hands. So basically what he's saying here is that every single god that anybody had, they praised, they worshipped, and even the ones they made with their own hands, it didn't matter. They were drunk. They were having a great time. They were using the temple implements. They were loaded, and they were going to praise all their gods for their prosperity, including the gods they made with their own hands. Sounds like a lot of what people do now. Well, it sounds like what Israel was doing, right? So that wasn't going to last too long. So they had this big party with the vessels from the temple, and this is the culminating scene of the total decadence of Babylon. This is the whole... I mean, if you look at what they did here, this is what the result of the end of all of this big thing was, this big Babylonian system. I want to read just one more thing here and we'll stop. Go back to Second Chronicles 36, 17 and 18. We're going to look at what happened when Ezra reviews this story. This is how serious this is. We know what the Bible says that Belshazzar did while he was the teenager at home partying in daddy's house, taking out all the booze and everything, being a fool. Listen to this. Second Chronicles 36, 17 and 18. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary. This is, this, is the, this is the sacking of the temple. And spared neither the young man nor, nor young woman, old man or aged. It didn't matter who you were or what you were. You were being killed or taken. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. So this is the beginning of the captivity. Now listen to this. He carried to Babylon all, all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple, and the treasures of the king and his officials. And it was these things that were what Belshazzar was using for his party. And the parting note here, we'll just stop right here in Daniel chapter 5 and verse 5a. While all that's going on with all these sacred things, and they're praising the gods of the whole system, the whole system including their own gods that they make with their hands. You don't have a god for something. The Indians do that today, right? You need a god for something? There's, none, there's nothing god, no god that you learned about? Make one up. Suddenly, in Daniel 5, 5, suddenly, just as God said with Nebuchadnezzar, while the words were still on his lips, while these people were praising their gods and doing all these things, suddenly, the fingers of a human hand, so it appeared, appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal place, and we'll leave it there for now because you know what that is. We'll pick that up next time. But I want you to understand, and you probably realize this, how important it is because they kind of de-emphasize it here. Near the lampstand. What lampstand was that? Was it just the, one of the lamps that they had lighting this place? It was one from the temple. It was the menorah. It was the lampstand. This is the real problem. So God chose to write near the menorah all the things that he wrote. This is the big deal. So we'll continue that next time.